Ira, aren't you so glad that we didn't make you tape this on a Friday morning at 7.30? As you, know you did why? last time you came on the show? <laughs> That's why I was never going to do your show again. Oh! <laughs> 7.30 a.m.? Is it a bird-watching podcast you were doing? What the f***? It, it, <laughs> NPR. We changed some things around. We changed some things around. Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week, the problem with award shows. All right, let's start the show. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. This episode, awards season. It's been just about a year since awards season 2020, when everything still felt like normal, when fancy award shows took place just before the pandemic shut everything down. Flash forward to now, and everything has changed. The Golden Globes, the SAG Awards, the Oscars, they have all been pushed back. And the award shows that have taken place so far in the pandemic, they looked very different. This award season is also happening with most of us watching new movies from our couches, not in movie theaters. And with just fewer movies, period. So many films have been held back until the pandemic is over. So as we head into this new and really strange award season, I wondered whether the pandemic will change all of this for good and just how much these awards actually still matter. So I turned to two people for some insights. Ira Madison III and Louis Fertel. They are two hosts of the podcast Keep It from Crooked Media. This weekend, the 2021 movie and TV awards season officially kicks off with the Golden Globes. Those awards have seen their share of controversies in the last few weeks, beginning with nominations and snubs. What movies or TV are already at this early state in this weird award season are getting short shrift? Well, I mean, immediately for the Globes, you know, there is Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You, right? You know, I feel like that was one of the biggest stories, even in film or TV, because it was just like one of the biggest um, critically acclaimed shows of the year. Um, And to see not even nary a nomination for it, um, and then to see Emily in Paris nominated. (laughs) For Golden Globes. Yeah, there were two sort of things like that, you know, where you were just sort of like, oh, this is what's being snubbed. You know, I could say for the Globes, you know, like, Things that are black are being snubbed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the biggest snub for me was uh, in the supporting actress category, Yejung Yoon, who is the grandmother in the movie Minari. It is mm-hmm. such a fresh, hilarious, and a maternal performance that does not feel quaint. It just feels like a real grandmother, not somebody just re- written for the screen. And I was yeah. really hoping that would be rewarded, but... Uh, uh, no can do. But this is the kind of performance that often gets a redemption arc going into the Oscars, you know, that people ah. get behind and eventually mm. it makes its way into the conversation. Yeah. When you mention Minari and when you mention I May Destroy You and how they've, they've been kind of snubbed so far, it raises this larger question that is always a question every award season as these awards continue to like not honor the right stuff, it seems. Are these award shows irrelevant? If there is an award season in which Emily in Paris gets more praise than I May Destroy You, is the whole system bust? And, and, and should we just stop caring about awards, period? Well, I would always argue that awards are not irrelevant. You know, I think, I think they can be superfluous um, and not sort of the point. But um, 
so much money is put into these award shows and people will tune into these things. They're still big events, right? So that right there tells you, one, they're not irrelevant. Two, it tells you what drives the conversation of what's important in this industry. Uh, and I think it is a reflection of the industry to have more people talking about Emily in Paris than talking about Emmy Destroy You because it's also representative of who makes up the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which decides the Golden Globes. It's like 85 people who write for foreign outlets who like live here and you know like love to schmooze and hobnob with celebrities you know and when you give that sort of power to those type of people you're really just creating a microcosm of what hollywood does normally but mm -hmm. i think amy poehler you know had a quote you know about how um yes you can call them irrelevant or whatever but you know it's like when someone is nominated for something it's not irrelevant on their career you know, yeah, it's not work, irrelevant. Their film on, gets more dollars. Yeah. Yeah. More people want to be like, hey, let me send a script to this person. Got to get this person in a movie, et cetera. You know, so the wards aren't irrelevant. They can drive um, people's careers to new heights and directions. But a lot of how they are produced needs a lot of work. Yeah. I also think this is a conversation that secretly has been occurring for the past 70 years. You know, it sort of it reminds me <laughs> of. You know, people are always like, well, are the Oscars relevant now? As if 10 years ago, we were all obsessed with them and everybody watched them and we all believed in every single award they handed out. That was never the case. I feel like that's a conversation generated by people who kind of don't care about the movies to begin with. Like, it's like if I were generating a conversation about the Super Bowl, like, who cares who wins this? You're all really good football players, you know? <laughs> I want to talk more about the Hollywood Foreign Press Association in advance of the Golden Globes, their award show this Sunday night. I mean, in some ways it feels like a brand new scandal, but in some ways it feels like we already knew. Uh, which of you can sum up what the state of their scandal is at this point going into the award show? Well, a big LA Times story came out confirming a lot of what we suspected, but putting finer points to it that are disturbing. I mean, the amount of money spent by Emily in Paris wooing members of the Hollywood Foreign Press, which is a very small organization. Paris? Yeah, they did. They, they Baby, stayed they flew extreme... them to Paris, put yeah. them up in hotels. I'm like, can I join the <laughs> HFPA? I miss Paris. <laughs> I mean, specifically about the HFPA, it's such a small organization. In the Academy, there are thousands and thousands of members. Like, you could not mount a campaign like that to woo the Academy. Uh, it, yeah. it confirms years and years of suspicions that the Golden Globes are obsessed with awarding sort of the glitziest thing or the thing that it, it's not necessarily the best TV show you ever saw, but it is, well, first, for one thing, white. But secondly, yeah. <laughs> but secondly, you know, rich enough that they can woo members of uh, the HFPA. And yeah. mm -hmm. uh, I always say about the Golden Globes, as, as an award show obsessive, I forget who has won them. Like, has John Hamm won one? I don't really remember. You know, it's mostly just... He probably just, doesn't either. Right. It's an amuse-bouche leading up to the Oscars, which is the real Christmas. You know, this is like St. Nick's Day compared to the Christmas of the Oscars. <laughs> yes. And, you know, we should say, besides this L.A. Times story kind of uncovering an almost pay-for-play model and a model in which, like, these journalists use the association to almost pay themselves salaries to watch movies. Uh, there's also a lawsuit from a European journalist who was not allowed into the HFPA, and she basically says it is a rich clique, and they're just, like, money-grabbing and hobnobbing with stars. Well, yeah, I mean, that makes so much sense. You know, I mean, I think there was something, too, in the report about how, like, these people are allegedly um, 
pressed, right? But you would be hard pressed to know what any of them have written, <laughs> you know, or what <laughs> any of their reviews are. You know, it's like it'd be different if you could see, like, oh, they spent the entire year like writing good reviews about like Emily in Paris, right? Or if they really liked I Care a lot, but you mm-hmm. actually have no idea like what these people have written and for like you know things like the critics choice awards or something um you could sort of at least like garner where things are going because you know what the critics have been lauding throughout the year yeah another big question about the way the movie business is just changing on top of seeing the awards season be totally upended this year we're also seeing the decline of movie theaters like we're not able to watch movies in theaters. We're all getting used to watching everything at home on demand. Is some of what the pandemic is doing just speeding up the inevitable in terms of I, like where and how we watch? I think that is a sort of early prognostication because I mean, like you could say the same thing about clubs and restaurants dying right you know and i still think that like when this is over clubs and restaurants will be packed again um and you can't tell me that people who enjoy movies aren't going to be going back to the movies to see them for americans who live their lives working daily those tiny releases that we had that sort of made life enjoyable are gone And you can't underestimate just how enjoyable it is to go and see a movie on a Friday night when you've been working all week. That's true. There's no way there won't be a bounce back in some fashion from this. There's always going to be people who are obsessed with movie theaters. I do anticipate Mm -hmm. that eventually there will be fewer of them. I question Mm -hmm. who will own them. But there's always going to be a movie theater open. I mean, people want to have fun who is sitting in the pandemic and thinking actually most things are better this way i think work is like that (laughs) for some people but in any other regard i don't think anybody's like well we really solved everything yeah maybe i would go see tom and jerry this weekend if i could okay i sure Uh, would not i sure would not i certainly to see a movie at the arc light i would you would see tom and jerry in the prestige theater Yes, wow. I yes I would. Okay, get me my caramel popcorn. I miss my chicken <laughs> apple sausage hot dog. Oh my goodness! I will say I can't wait, and I've already planned this out. My first like return to a movie theater after the pandemic is going to go see Cats. That's it. That's my only option. It has to be Cats to reintroduce. You think myself that's still going to gonna like, be playing? Someone's <laughs> going to do it for me. I'm praying and believing. I'm trusting and believing someone let me go watch Cats when this is all said and done. I guess I, I think you can take some sort of pill and then hit your head and you're already watching Cats. So you don't have to, you don't have to go to the IMAX for that. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I'm going to play my favorite game, Who Said That?, with my two distinguished guests, Ira Madison III and Louis Vertel, hosts of the Crooked Media podcast, Keep It. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Best Fiends. Not all heroes wear capes. Some wear spaghetti stains courtesy of Baby's First Pasta Night. And if there's one thing everyday heroes like you deserve, it's a few minutes to yourself, with no dishes or diapers in sight. So let your trusty sidekick hold down the fort tonight. You've got a date with a five-star rated mobile puzzle game. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor 3M, supporting communities in the fight against COVID-19. Since the outbreak, 3M has responded with cash and product donations, including surgical masks, hand sanitizer, and respirators through local and global aid partners. In addition, 3M plants are running around the clock, producing more than 95 million respirators per month in the U.S. Learn how 3M is helping the world respond to COVID-19. Go to 3M.com COVID. 3M Science. Applied to life. When the survivors of a mass shooting at a newspaper went back to work, everything was different, even email. What if someone's sending us more death threats or what if somebody sends me a death threat and I don't see it and then somebody comes and kills all my friends and it's my fault because I didn't read the email? That's this week on the Capital Gazette series from NPR's Embedded. You are listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm your host, Sam Sanders, joined this weekend by a distinguished panel. My two guests are Louis Vertel and Ira Madison III, two of the hosts of the Crooked Media culture podcast, Keep It. I'm so glad to have y'all here. You ready to play a game? I love games. Yes, and I don't like losing games, so I'm already angry. I'm, I, wow. I need to win. I, we'll have fun, but I need to win. Can we have a t-shirt for you that just reads, I'm already angry? <laughs> yes, with Kathy on it, of Kathy cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> so this game is really simple. It is called Who Said That? Ooh, Who said that? All I do Who is share that? three quotes from the week of news. And y'all got to guess who said it or who I'm talking about. I'll give you lots of hints, and you just yell out the answer when you got it, because there are no buzzers. This is public radio. We're on a budget. The thing about this game, though, is there's actually no winner, and there are no prizes. So it's whatever. All right. Well, in that case, I'll work with Iron. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here we go. Here is the first quote. Tell me who said this. What do they call it? A contact high? That's the extent of my getting high with Snoop. Is secondhand smoke, which is pretty serious, by the way. Who said that? It's got to be our girl, Martha Stewart. It is our girl, Martha Stewart. Yes. So Martha Stewart was in a wide-ranging profile in Harper's Bazaar this week. And she was asked about her, um, gosh, very long and beautiful friendship and business relationship with Snoop Dogg, the rapper and weed connoisseur. A lot of folks think that she smokes weed because she hangs with Snoop Dogg a lot. But she said, no, I don't. Did y'all read the profile? I did. And my favorite part of it was she talked about how the, her biggest regret is that she didn't get to host SNL because her probation officer at the time would not allow it, which means we got to get Martha Stewart hosting now. Oh, yes. We need that like yesterday. I also love Martha Stewart because, and I talk about this with Ira frequently, I miss imperious, unapproachable celebrities. Like Martha Stewart, just who she is, the level of control she exerts in every area of her life is terrifying. And I am so appreciative of that. And she's so not somebody who's going to reply to your comment on Instagram with like, thanks for following. She doesn't care if you're following. (laughs) Right. She dragged (laughs) Chelsea Handler for trying to even impersonate her on Instagram. More of that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, Lewis, you got that point. It is time for the next quote. Y'all are going to get this one so quickly. Uh, Here we go. I will give you some tea. I was the ninth choice in Devil Wears Prada. Anne Hathaway. Mm, Anne Hathaway. Or as I call her, Stan Hathaway. Because I stan. She said it on Drag Race. That's right. Yeah, so Anne Hathaway was on RuPaul's Drag Race recently. She showed up via Zoom. Uh, She was in the workroom to advise and encourage the contestants. And they asked her if she ever had to fight tooth and nail for any of her roles. And she told them, in fact... I was the ninth choice for Devil Wears Prada. No way! 
Who are the top eight? Do we know? I was just thinking, you should be able to deduce that. Mm -hmm. I feel like a Reese Witherspoon is in there somewhere. Mm -hmm. You know? Uh, we're also talking about the mid-2000s, so we gave a mysterious amount of power to people like Kate Bosworth. You never know. <laughs> mm. um, but man, eight people. She's so right for that role and so winning in that role. It seems unfathomable. It was 2006. You know what? I bet like an Elijah Cuthbert fresh off The Girl Next Door was who like the studio was like, gotta get her. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, uh, I don't hate the idea. Yeah. I don't object to other wonderful actresses being considered, but... Anne's gifts just mm -hmm. seem so apparent. Uh, I guarantee none of the other eight were not white. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I did notice these actresses had something in common, yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this game is tied. It's a nail-biter. This last quote is for all the marbles. You ready? Yes, yeah. yes. Okay. You bore us. If science is a, quote, commitment to truth, shall we cite all the historical non-truths perpetrated by scientists? Of course not. It's not science versus philosophy. It's science plus philosophy. Elevate your thinking and consciousness. MC Hammer. Yeah. MC Hammer. Yes. MC Hammer. Yes. yes. <laughs> I got to finish the quote because it's so funny. He goes, elevate your thinking and consciousness. When you measure, include the measurer. Mm. What even is this? Can no one of y'all explain this to me, please? No idea. What happened here? I saw it shared on Instagram, and I was like, oh, that's what's happening on Twitter these days. Okay. <laughs> it's like when you ask Will and Jaden Smith about math. It's like, well, you asked for it. Here comes a paragraph of backward syllables, <laughs> like nothing you've ever heard before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So MC Hammer, who I know most for his amazing Behind the Music, um, he was responding to a tweet on Twitter this week in which someone tweeted, Philosophy is flirtation with ideas. Science is commitment to truth. That tweet was a response to MC Hammer tweeting the visibility of philosophy of science in the sciences. Girl, <laughs> all I know is why do these rappers get on Twitter thinking they got a PhD? I admired Patton Oswalt's joke, which was, please, Hammer, don't theorem. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Not much more needs to be said other than occasionally if pumps and a bump is on, I don't turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would have learned about science too, you know. If I lost that much, come on, I'd pick up a book. Yeah, he might know a lot about science, but uh, <laughs> the way he handled his money, he does not know a lot about math. I'll tell you that. If you have an E! True Hollywood story featuring the gates to a mansion with your initials in the gates, it eventually all goes south for you. <laughs> That's the rule. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, MC Hammer. Please stop hurting them and us and you. Um, the winner is, drumroll, oh, the winner is Ira Madison the third. I don't want to win. I don't get anything. <laughs> <laughs> can you I stated earlier that I needed this, and yet Ira Lewis is the can winner. have it. <laughs> wow. Well, okay, can one of y'all give us a quick award show-style acceptance speech? Oh, sure. Uh, Ira, you should do this. I, I'm more curious about yours. You know, um... I do believe that there are some angels in this city. Uh, thank you, love. Ooh, name the you, speech. Life. Name the speech. <laughs> Marion Cotillard, 2008. Yeah. <laughs> Deep cut. Deep cut. Oh, my goodness. This is uh, so much fun. Listeners, you can find Ira and Lewis whenever you want on their lovely pop culture podcast. Keep it wherever you get your podcast. Thank you both, and congratulations to Ira, who now wears the Who Said That crown. Bye. Thank you, Thank Sam. you. Thank you, and goodbye. Thank you, and goodbye. <laughs> that was beautiful. Did I sound like Vincent Price? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> 
This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax. At CarMax, the best way to buy a car is your way. Shop on your schedule and choose from over 50,000 CarMax certified vehicles at CarMax.com. Check out 360-degree views, set up a trade-in appraisal, apply for financing, and buy online or in-store with curbside pickup and home delivery in select markets. Get all the details and start the search for your next car today at CarMax.com. He was one of the most consequential architects of the civil rights movement. But you may never have heard of him. For our Black History Month special series, Bayard Rustin, who made nonviolence part of the fight for civil rights and organized the March on Washington. Listen now to the Throughline podcast from NPR. What is your, what is your like first Selena memory as a kid? I remember when she died. Yeah. I remember when she died. I remember the San Antonio Express news and the paper just being wall-to-wall Selena for, like, weeks. Oh, yeah. And I remember the vigils and the flowers. And it was... It felt like Texas's own version of Princess Diana died. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it felt... If you were in Texas, it felt like the Kennedy assassination. Um, that's how her biographer puts it in terms of just, like, seismic impact. Yeah. That is Maria Garcia. She's the host of Anything for Selena. That's a podcast from WBUR and Fortuito Studios. This podcast is all about the enduring legacy of Selena Quintanilla Perez. And what I love about it so much, it talks about how Selena and her legacy are a lot more than just her music. Loving Selena Mourning Selena was political from the beginning. It meant something, and it still means something now. I grew up in South Texas, and Selena has been this cultural touchstone for me for decades now. In fact, we had a whole Selena segment on this show when Netflix dropped a series a few months ago all about her life. But in my imagination and in the culture, Selena has been flattened. Fun songs, a big smile, sparkly outfits. That's it. Maria's podcast sets out to challenge that narrative and let the world know that Selena meant a lot more and changed a lot more than most of us think. Selena came at a time, at a crucial time in history for Latinos, right before the internet. She came at a time when a new Latino identity was forming. Well, you say in the podcast that she's, she was kind of responsible for the birth of people in Espanol. She was. So after her death, People magazine put out two issues. The western part of the U.S. and most of the southwest got Selena on the cover. And then the eastern part of the country got um, a cover with the cast of Friends from the sitcom, you know, which is sort of like... (laughs) You can't make this up. (laughs) You know, this visual metaphor of sort of an all-white coastal elite cast, right, from this sitcom. On the other cover was the face of this slain brown singer that held on to Mm. a working class, markedly Mm. working class Mexican-American identity and aesthetic that in the mid-90s was so incredibly derided because this was, you know, the age of heavy assimilation when most portrayals of Latinos and particularly Mexican-Americans were of, you know, lost dropouts or 
teen moms. Um, and so here was this squeaky clean Mexican-American who somehow was transcending in American society, yeah. ascending to this new plane while also holding on to her roots without compromise, without contorting yeah. herself. And that yeah. was so powerful to see, like at such a visceral level. Even me, you know, as a seven-year-old without, like I said, having the ability to intellectualize this, to fully even articulate it, I felt it. I felt mm -hmm. like what a big mm -hmm. deal it was to see a woman like her ascend. Yeah. And you have an entire episode of your Selena podcast about her death and when and how that affected the culture. You point out, and I hadn't thought about this until your episode, the rise of Selena also coincides with the massive growth in the 90s in America of the Latinx population. And so her rise almost coincided with increasing fears from white America of like a brown takeover. And so she dies and people are mourning her and some white people make her death and mourning her death political. And they put all of their anxieties about the community writ large onto her. And you really crystallize how that all comes to a head with the way that Howard Stern on his radio show treated her death. Yeah, I mean, from 1990 to 2000, the Latino population surged by 60% in this country. Wow. Wow. And Selena died in 1995, right in the middle of this historic demographic shift when all people were talking about was what the country was going to look like as it rounded out the millennium, as it hit the year 2000. And there were a lot of anxieties about uh, Latinos and particularly Mexican-American working class Latinos. And so Selena, whether she wanted to be or not, um, even before her death, was a symbol. But then... The weekend of her death. So she is mm -hmm. shot on a Friday. She dies almost immediately. It is it is a violent, cruel, cold death. And yeah. there are images of these people um, who are often not seen on television at this point in American history, just crying and mourning her so prof so yeah you know yeah well, her death brought about this visibility because you would see hundreds and thousands of people come out in the streets to mourn her and there was no way for white america to not see all those brown people in the streets you know to honor one of their heroes yeah so then what happens is you have a full weekend after the friday of her death, of these images of distraught Latinos crying for her. And then um, Howard Stern and his producers decide it's a great idea to to open their show by making fun of those mourners and uh, by making fun of Selena's yeah. music. Spanish people have the worst taste of music. <laughs> they really do. <laughs> all happy. That's because they're all so sad. Well, you point out in this Howard Stern episode, you post this audio of Stern and his co-host and his, his team mocking Latinos in a derogatory accent as they're playing Selena music beneath that. Um, and then 
a Latino DJ calls in and says, hey, that's offensive. Howard Stern gets into an argument with him, and Howard Stern ends up telling this man who was an American citizen, go back to Mexico. Okay, and so you I, did you do it. And I'm going to do it again. Okay. And I'm going to do it 20 friggin' times. Right, and I want you to leave my country. No, All man, of this I mean, over his anger that people would mourn Selena. You know, she meant so much more than just her. Yeah, and and I remember people saying, you know, why is it such a big deal? Like, you know, mm-hmm. she was she was a pop star, but of course we know that for Latinos, <laughs> you know, she was yeah. more than a pop star. She was a symbol again of living in America without letting go of your roots. Yeah. You announce at the start of each episode that there are also Spanish versions of these English language episodes to accompany the English language versions. My Spanish is very bad, so I have not been listening to those. But a colleague of mine recently told me that she has been and she's found out that the Spanish language episodes are different than the English ones. They aren't just translations. Yeah. So I knew that in the spirit of Selena, you know, one of the things that made her so profoundly important in the 90s is that her Spanish wasn't perfect. And yet she spoke it without shame. And that was so powerful for me to see when I was seven years old, because when I was seven is right when I was starting to sort of struggle with my Spanish after being a a native Spanish speaker. Mm. And I knew that I that we needed to have a dual language component and I knew that it had to be authentic and to me that looks like with an open heart coming to listeners and saying and I say this in the first episode in Spanish you know maybe you've noticed that I that I don't speak Spanish perfectly that I struggle that it's halting and it was important for me to do it to confront my shame that I have felt for so long around Spanish Mm. and, frankly, some self-loathing. And so, yeah, your producer's right. It's not a word-for-word because it's me navigating in in a different language and having Mm. these, you know, really vulnerable conversations with folks that summarize the English episodes. Yeah. What kind of celebrity do you think Selena would be today if she were still here? What kind of music would she be making? Would she be political at all? What would her Instagram feed look like? Do you think about that? A lot. Constantly, Sam. Constantly. Tell me what you think. I'm curious. (laughs) You know, this is when I long for her the most. Um, Selena came from a sort of ethos of performance that her family had, which was don't talk about politics ever, stick to your art. And I genuinely believe that the way we sort of saw Beyonce, you know, go from, you know, and early on in her career, she was very much, Beyonce was under her father's wing. And then we saw her sort of bloom into herself. And I think that we would have seen that with Selena. Would she have spoken for Black Lives Matter? Would she have spoken against kids in cages? Would she have used her artistry to make a statement? I don't know, but I I have a feeling that she would have because her whole 
ethos, everything about her artistry was about building bridges and not putting up walls. And I think yeah. we would see that. Um, and I also think, you know, she'd have a song with Bad Bunny right now and that instead of Rosalia <laughs> yes. on SNL, we maybe we would send Selena yes. with him. Come you know, on. I'm ready for that. <laughs> it would be so amazing. I'm going to spend the whole day now thinking about <laughs> what a Selena song in 2021 might sound like. What a talent. I miss her. And uh, your podcast has helped with that. I appreciate it. Thank you, Sam. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Maria Garcia. She is the host of the podcast Anything for Selena from WBUR and Futuro Studios. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week, listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions. Hi, Sam. This is Elizabeth from Concord, California. The best part of my week was driving into my driveway and noticing that my daffodil bulbs were just starting to sprout. And it made me so, so happy. Hey, Sam. It's Cheryl from beautiful Northwest Georgia, Calhoun, Georgia. And the best part of my week at 66 years young, was getting my second COVID-19 vaccine, the booster shot. Hi, Sam. This is Sylvia outside of Boston. The best part of my week was watching the rover Perseverance land on the surface of Mars with my Mars-obsessed almost five-year-old. Watching the immense amount of relief and joy on the faces of those people who've worked so hard, and then just watching the huge eyes of my kid who wants to land herself on the surface of Mars someday. Hi, Sam. This is Laura. And Nick, calling from Lincoln, Nebraska. And for the first time in our more than two years of trying, we got a positive pregnancy test. After all the poking and prodding and testing and whatever else... We are going to be parents. We always love listening to you, Sam, and we've been waiting for our turn to call. Thank you for doing this, Sam. Have a great week, and thanks for your show. Bye now. That was a good one. Congrats on the pregnancy. Babies, I love it. All right, thanks to all those listeners you just heard. Laura and Nick, Sylvia, Cheryl, and Elizabeth. Listeners, don't forget, you can be a part of this segment, too. You can send us your best thing at any time throughout any week. Just record yourself on your phone and then send that voice memo to me. Our email address is samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. This week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Janae West, Andrea Gutierrez, and Sylvie Douglas. We had fact-checking help from Jane Gilvin. Our intern is Liam McBain. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hokeman. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. Our big boss is NPR senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. Listeners, till next time, be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon.